Hello, I'm Jamie Bricker. And I'm Carol Bricker. And you're listening to Bricker by Bricker, a podcast to support parents with building productive partnerships between home and school. And Carol, as you know, throughout all of our podcasts uh, in the first few months of 2020, we've really tried to focus on discussing different teaching and learning approaches that are frankly becoming more and more commonplace in today's classrooms. And I think another important aspect for parents is that, of course, many of these approaches are quite different than what parents themselves would have experienced to students. Oh, certainly. And when we look at our last podcast, we focused on inquiry learning with our special guest, Trevor McKenzie. And Trevor is a published author, an international speaker, and an instructional uh, consultant who focuses a lot of his time and his expertise on all aspects of inquiry learning. Well, as you know, Carol, uh, our last podcast with Trevor involved a lot of really rich discussion regarding inquiry learning. And I think before we resume this discussion with Trevor, like looking back, Carol, what was one of your biggest takeaways from our last podcast? Well, one thing that I really liked is is the swimming analogy, which really outlined the four types of of inquiry and the whole progression from structured inquiry, where there's a lot of of teacher guidance and support um, and and input through that process, all the way to that free inquiry, which there's a lot of student autonomy at that stage of the game. And I think Trevor did a really good job of outlining the merits of all four types. And I really look forward to our continued discussion with him about these various timelines and then how they are accommodated to meet the needs of all learners within the classroom. Well, Carol, since you are such a strong swimmer yourself, I can't say I'm the least bit surprised that that analogy really resonated with you. Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) But I agree, it's really powerful, and the accompanying visual that goes along with it it really kind of makes that point, that kind of progression. Mm -hmm. And we'll certainly put a link to that visual on our website. So if our listeners are wanting to to gain more information or to see what uh, information it's providing, then it will be available to them. Now, what particularly resonated with me was that whole concept of student agency and the, the, the key underlying components of student voice and student choice. Because, I mean, let's face it, any meaningful learning really has to be highly relevant to the individual learner, and it has to genuinely activate his or her personal schema. So I really like that whole you know student agency. Like, Well, I mean, so it, it comes down to those relationships that are so essential between the teacher and the student, the teacher and the family, which then allows for that more personalized instruction. No question. Well, it was a great first podcast discussion with Trevor regarding inquiry learning. So let's now continue with the discussion of timelines you were just referring to, Carol. So then I kind of have a a couple of questions moving forward with this. So, you know, you kind of talked about timelines but as as teachers and kids become more experienced with this this model of teaching or model of learning like their progression through the stages are we typically looking at a year or or shorter times or kind of teachers are 
are looking at their students and where they are and, and making those determinations that maybe this group is ready to move on. This group isn't like how, and I'm more so from that parent perspective, like how as a parent, do I know kind of what stage my child is in this continuum? Yeah, those are great questions. And, and, you know, I'll speak to some of my experiences in in visiting schools around the world and also my parenting, you know, um, the first year after that swimming pool graphic, uh, you know, was released and, and the response to it was so powerful. And the, and the work I was doing in schools, I was seeing change right away. You know, in the, in the schools I was visiting and in kind of adopting that framework, I was seeing some really amazing things. And then I was going into some, some spaces, observing teachers, that change wasn't happening right away. It was, it was quite slow and cumbersome. And, and I really began to question, you know, what is happening in the classrooms that are adopting this framework? And, and why isn't it working as powerful, powerfully as, as just down the hall with another teacher? And what I began to notice was it, it wasn't the framework that was, uh, you know, the success. It was the teacher in the room that was utilizing the framework. And the teacher themselves possessed certain characteristics, certain dispositions that was allowing that framework to flourish and, and thrive. And so you know, then I, I went back to the drawing board. I went back to research. I went back to observing more and more and more teachers in classrooms. And, and there are eight characteristics of the inquiry teacher that are part of my second publication. There's a, also a sketch note on my website that outlines those. And it, it goes hand in hand with parenting, if you will. You know, I, I say the inquiry teacher. It could easily be the inquiry, you know, parent, if you will. And, and, you know, one of those characteristics, and we spoke briefly about this off air, but we can, you know, we'll talk about it now is, you know, inquiry teachers inherently are just, they're really passionate about what they do. You know, they love what they do. And in that passion and in that love for being in the classroom, that, that really shapes and impacts the experience for kids. And it actually teaches kids how to love learning. Like they, they love being around passionate teachers. And, and I, I can't, that's something that, I'm really trying my best to demystify for teachers around the world. Like what are these eight characteristics? How can you sharpen a few of them? You know, what is one that you would like to be your, your kind of learning focus for a few months and let's document growth. Let's reflect and document some things that you're intentionally doing to have that characteristic disposition, you know, elevated in your classroom. And then, you know, I think, I think for parents, you know, I'll speak to, uh, my my sons, you know, they're they're so different, if you will. Like they're they're just. <laughs> we have two boys as well, so we know exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I used to say that. You know, I I don't know how my kids are so different. Like we we've, we've parented the same, we fed them the same, they've they've grown up in the same neighborhood. But but you know, recently, about a, two years ago, I had this epiphany, and it was no, we we don't parent them the same, and and they're they're different kids, and we we do treat them differently. And, you know, Ewan, my 10-year-old, I, you know, I, I love both my kids. And, and Ewan, when he was young, you know, he, he's just, he's such a unique young boy. You know, he, he was born uh, highly verbal. He started speaking at a very young age. He started making sense of the world in really unique ways, showing really unique interests. And, you know, as he was slowly getting ready to enter our schooling system, I think my wife and I were just really fearful of what schooling would do to our unique son, you know, and, and quite frank, I, I see kids in my high school classrooms who have had that uniqueness stripped from them, right? And and that was a genuine fear as a parent. 
And, and so, you know, we, we decided to, you know, really just try to honor our kids and their uniqueness. And it took us some time to really get over some of our fears as parents. You know, a really great metaphor is Ewan loves fedoras. He loves these hats and he'll buy a hat whenever we travel. Uh, he's got hats from around the world. And as a kindergartner, you know, we were worried that some kids would pick on him for wearing a fedora to school. And so we, we, we instilled something called uh, Fedora Friday, right? Which is the day of the week that you can wear your fedora to school. And, and in protecting our son out of his uniqueness, we were really kind of squelching what what he's all about, right? Like he is a unique dude and we need to just honor that. And my wife and I had this epiphany one morning where it was a Monday morning and he said, mom, dad, can I wear my fedora today? And I said, sorry, son, it's not fedora Friday. And I I just caught how ridiculous that sounded. And I said, you know, son, you want to wear your fedora today? Go for it. And that was a huge shift for us as parents, right? To really honor our kids and not protect them out of something. And I think Sadly, I think teachers do a really good job of protecting their kids out of things, right? Like, you wonder why our kids are anxious and overwhelmed. Well, we're not having them do much genuine decision making in our schooling. Um, And and so Ewan today, for example, he's now 10. So this is five years in the making now. Uh, His class is going on a field trip to our local university to watch uh, an orchestra uh, perform. There's a massive symphony event here. And he said, Dad, can you help me with my, with my dress, my, my, my attire, my wardrobe? I said, sure. What, what do you want to wear? And he says, well, I think I, think I want to wear a blazer today. What blazer should I wear? I said, pick a blazer, son. You know, and, and I think that's the heart of the matter is, you know, we, we truly need to honor who our kids are. And, of course, you know, have their safety and their well-being in mind through those decisions. But sometimes we just need to get out of the way, don't we? And we really need to stop protecting our kids out of making some decisions that if we don't, I think it's going to have a drastic impact on their sense of self. And and that's not a success story from my wife and I. Like I think that really is more of a, a, a feeling of tension that we were living with for quite a few months in terms of when Ewan was in school. We were really worried about what schooling would do to him. And uh, part of what we were worried about was actually negatively impacting him. It wasn't schooling. It was us. And so, you know, I think it's more of a story, not of success, but, you know, parents who are listening, you know, really try to, of course, honor your, 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 your children uh, and really, really nurture what it is that they're interested in. And, and that's another piece, just briefly, you know, showing our kids that we care about what they care about. You know, my kids have such unique interests and, and I was never into World War One military history or collecting military badges from World War One, but I am now, and and I, I am now because my ten year old is. You know, I, I really love soccer now, and why do I love soccer? Because my son, my seven year old, loves soccer, and I think you know, parents, we really need to show our kids that their interests and their passions matter. And if you're an educator listening, it's it's the same thing in the classroom. You know, what are your students interested in? What excites them? And let's provide them some time and space to explore that and show them that we we care about that too. And even though we have a curriculum we're going to explore and discover together, there's space in that curriculum for their curiosities and their wonders and their interests to kind of thrive and grow in our time together. Now, Trevor, their interests are obviously going to trigger a whole lot of really genuine, authentic, you know, questions and queries. And yet, as we all know, uh, for generations, or I guess since time began, education in terms of assessment, the entire educational system has been all about answers. 
So with inquiry, so kind of doing such a great job generating, you know, deeper and deeper questions, it really kind of begs the question, yes, pun intended, of how is inquiry and inquiry learning assessed? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great question, Jamie. Um, and, and you know, I, I have to say before we dive into that too, too deeply, you know, I am seeing, uh, you know, assessment change around the world. I'm seeing universities accepting a lot different uh, outcomes or products in terms of accepting kids uh, into their institutions. I'm seeing some of the most, I guess you could say, traditional schools around the world really reimagine what they want for their kids. And, and that's exciting. You know, th- those, those changes weren't happening 10 years ago. They, sh- they, they, they certainly weren't even happening, you know, as I started this good work. And so, um, and, and I'm seeing that now around the world. And I think that's part of, you know, my offering to teachers around the world is, you know, connecting those dots of what I'm seeing in these schools that I'm visiting. And, you know, for some teachers, they're on Twitter or they're on social media and they could see this global conversation. But I think many teachers, uh, you know, they, they, they come to school and they're in their classroom throughout the day and, and they're not able to connect the dots and I'm able to help them connect. And so I just wanted to shed light on that, that, that I am seeing drastic change around the world. And that is exciting. Well, it is exciting because, you know, the traditional ways that we, we assessed really aren't the skills that students are needing move, moving forward into careers that, you know, at this point in time, we haven't even a clue what those careers might be. So I think, you know, and particularly kids who are going through the college university route, like we need to do things differently so that they have those skills moving forward. And so it's great to hear that that's happening even at that higher level. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the second piece that comes to mind is, you know, a lot of the schools that I've worked with long term over the last 10 years, those schools that I visit across three years, you know, I've seen many of them. And I, I say many, I'd say, you know, 90% of them encounter the same problem. And it is a problem. And, and, and it has to do with assessment. So a lot of these schools get to this place and implementation where it's really authentic. It's really powerful. There's been a culture change at the school where these schools overall, you know, the teachers are doing this really good work. And, and then, you know, kind of the last 80% or 90%, you know, the, the, or I should say they get 80% or 90% of the way there. And the last little chunk is the assessment piece. And the assessment piece ends up being this really depersonalizing experience for kids where the kids have had this really fulfilling, meaningful experience. And then the teacher has taken an artifact, taken an essay or a, a, a presentation, and they've attached a number to it. And, and you know, numbers are, we need numbers in school. That's not what I'm proposing. I'm not saying we get rid of numbers. But what in these scenarios, the number represents is they lack student voice. You know, if, if the number was co-decided with, with a student and teacher talking about the learning, you know, and that's really what I propose is how can we adopt an assessment framework that is more infused with student voice? So students have a really good understanding of where they are now and where they need to go to next. And I think throughout my career, I've been really good at that. I've been really good at assessment. I've, I've known where all of my students are and where they need to go to next. But I, I don't think my kids could answer that question for themselves. So, 
right now I'm writing my third publication and, and it is about just what you had said, Jamie. And it's so, it's so ironic that you've lobbed this up for me so beautifully <laughs> in, in your question. It, it, it is about assessment and inquiry and how do we uh, assess inquiry and how do we adopt more equitable assessment frameworks so all students in our classrooms have a chance to succeed. Um, you know, so many things that I see in classrooms I visit are dominated by, you know, two or three or four students who have a tendency to put up their hand fastest or who have, you know, who are extroverts and they feel comfortable sharing aloud in class. And, and you know, those two or three or four students, that, that's not good enough for me. Like, what about the other 25 students in my class who are just playing the waiting game that someone else is going to put up their hand first, right? And that that's what I say, I, I, that's what I would call an inequitable assessment framework is that, you know, I'm only really getting an understanding of three kids. What about the other 25, 27 kids? So this book is really going to draw the curtain back on, on what that assessment looks like. It, it has a lot to do with, of course, if you want it, coach it. If you want students to be strong self-assessors, we actually have to teach that skill if you want students to have agency and assessment, we actually have to provide them some time and space and support to do that. Um, <clears throat> about two years ago, for example, I, I I stopped taking report cards home with me. You know, I used to do all my report cards at home on my school computer, you know, my laptop in, into the wee hours of the morning, and it was exhausting. And about two years ago, I said, no, I'm, I'm going to co-write my report cards with my students in class. I'm going to book them for 10 to 15 minute conferences. I'm going to open up the grade book and we're going to write this report card together. And, and every comment I would write would come from a student's mouth. And, and then I'd, I'd read it back to them and say, are you okay with this? Because I agree with this. I love this. Do you love it too? And undeniably all of my students feel like it's a really meaningful conversation around their learning. And it's not about the letter grade. It's not about the number. It's about the discussion. And so when that report card goes home and the son or daughter comes home and they say, Mom or dad, I want you to read that comment. And they actually point their finger to our class. And the mom or dad says, well, why do you want me to read that comment? And the student says, because I, I co-wrote that. Like, that's those powerful. are my words. That very powerful. Right? Like, and that's where you talk about powerful shifts in education. I think so much of what I see in the schools that I visit, if I'm honest, parents listening, you know, uh, a barrier to change is, is parents' concerns. You know, that's not how I was taught in school. That's not what I experienced in school. And I did just well. I did just fine. You know, I think we need to include parents to be a part of this inquiry conversation. My resources are, are for parents just as much as they're for teachers. So parents can see why we're doing things differently for, for their sons and daughters. And also, you know, I think a, a big advocate for change, it's students, right? And I want my sons and daughters, uh, the sons and daughters that I teach in my, in my classroom to go home and talk about how meaningful it is, talk about how fulfilling it is. And then when the parents see the achievement on the report card and the, and the kids say, well, I co-wrote that or I co-decided that, that letter grade, I think that's where change happens, right? So, you know, I think assessment is uh, undeniably, it's, it's, it, it has to be more student-centered. I'm seeing schools adopt it more and more intentionally. And that's, that's really the reason for this third book is I want to demystify what that looks like for those schools who are really keen on making this transformative shift happen in their, in their schools. And I, well, I think, and it's also important to just to comment and that like a, a assessment is happening throughout 
the whole in inquiry process, whether it be that conferencing with kids and 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 providing that feedback and, you know, to give kids the opportunity during those conferences to, you know, discuss, okay, I'm having challenges this way or I think I need to do it that way. And and that it's not just that isolated at the end assessment. It's it's the whole process of assessment throughout the whole project. Yeah, Kara, I think you've hit it on the on the on the head so beautifully. You know, the the product does matter, and I think that's an inquiry myth is that you know, oh, there's there's no outcome or there's no there's no thing at the end of the learning, and and it's all about the question, and that's not the case. It, it is about both. Uh, the product matters. The process becomes so rich. The formative is is so powerful, and the and the formative and the process will impact the product undeniably. If if you're doing the formative and the process really really well, I think a big shift I made in my assessment practice that I encourage teachers to reflect on and consider was finding a balance between my summative and my formative. And and early in my career, I used to do way too many summatives. You know, as an English teacher, maybe in a single year, I do 30 essays with a kid, with, with, with kids. And, and it was breaking my back, you know, doing all that working and it was breaking their back doing all that work. And so now what I do is maybe I do four essays in a year, but my formative is so much more rich. And then my assessment frameworks are much more equitable. So students actually have a chance an opportunity to authentically grow and change and demonstrate learning across time. So I think that's something that, that teachers around the world are really grappling with is, you know, oh, I have to do more because more will mean they'll, they'll get better over time. It's like a sport analogy, isn't it? You know, the more free throws I shoot, the better free throw player I will become. Schooling is different. You know, let's slow things down and let's give them really rich feedback. Let's give them really honest, authentic, personalized feedback over and over and over and have them use that feedback to to revise and rework and then hand something in. And I, I find time and time again, if we can really embed formative feedback in a powerful manner, the product increases. And I think teachers who are, are rich in formative feedback, they'd agree. Uh, teachers who are listening who are perhaps more summative heavy, you know, more of what I described myself as being earlier in my career, I encourage you to, to try to find more of a balance in your formative and your summative, if you will. And really specific feedback rather than just generic praise. I think yeah, it's really important. Yeah, yeah Jamie, and, and I'm sure you you both experienced this throughout your career. You know, I, I used to give that really rich feedback, let's say an essay again, being an English teacher, that would be my example. And, you know, I, I'd spend you know, probably 15, 20 minutes per essay. That was as fast as I could get it down to 15 minutes per essay. Right. And then do the math. Like I've got 30 kids a class. I've got four classes. That's a lot of time spent per essay. And, and sadly what was happening was I would come back to school with all these essays marked. There'd be a number on the top. There'd be all this rich formative feedback. I'd say to the kids, okay, I want you to read the feedback and then you could, you could re rewrite this. You can hand it in tomorrow. And the kids would not look at the feedback. Their eye would go directly to the number. And then as soon as they looked at the number, they would turn to their friend beside them and they'd say, well, what did you get? What did, what, what's your mark? And all I was doing was creating the conditions for a really sad and, and anxiety kind of inducing comparative culture in my class where kids were comparing assessment rather than reflecting on assessment. So about five years ago, I just refused to put a number or a letter grade on anything that had feedback on it. 
So, you know, th- this is what I do now. The kids have that essay. It's got all that feedback on it, all that rich formative on it. And in my grade book, I have the number. So I'm still assessing, right? The, the number's in my binder over here on my desk. And then I say to kids, okay, I want you to spend time, spend 10 minutes really reading that feedback. And I want you to compare that feedback to our co-designed rubric. All my rubrics that I use in class are co-designed with students. So they have a really clear understanding of the assessment tool. And I say, if, if my feedback is clear enough, you should be able using that co-designed rubric to get the same number I have in my grade book. And if we don't have the same number, I did something wrong in my feedback. Either I gave you too much praise or I gave you too much of the, the critique, the criticism. I need you to use that feedback to tell me what the number is that you think you got. And so now students, they dive into the feedback and they dive into the rubric. And then when they turn to a friend, they say, hey, can you help me with this feedback? What do you think this feedback means on the rubric? And so the conversation around assessment is, is drastically different in my class now than it was five, 10 years ago. And then students, they come up to me and they will we'll compare the two numbers. I'll say, well, what number did you have? This is the number I have. Let's look at the feedback. And sometimes my feedback wasn't clear enough or wasn't concise enough. And I have to do some, some, some talking, some, you know, some discourse, some conferencing. So, you know, that's been a really meaningful shift. It's been an easy shift. It was probably hardest on my students, to be honest. You know, when I first rolled this out, and kids didn't see a number on the essay, they freaked out. They said, oh my God, you, you didn't mark it? Where, where's my mark? And I had to assure them, no, 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 I marked it. But we're going to go through this together a little bit differently to hopefully get to a, a different, more powerful, personalized space. And I, I want to raise that for the audience listening in that we really need to talk our kids through these emotional changes that we're asking them to take on. You know, In inquiry, they are going to take on more of the heavy lifting. They are going to be reflecting throughout learning and and perhaps i say perhaps kind of you know tongue in cheek many of them haven't had these experiences before in their schooling and we're re uh we're kind of re-sparking this love for learning if you will and if we're not putting words to some of the things that they're going to encounter some of the challenges they're going to face then we're really doing them a disservice all we're setting them up for is to feel overwhelmed and and anxious so any change that teachers are, that are listening are going to uh, adopt, really put feelings or words to those feelings that students are going to encounter. And same thing with parents, you know, if, if you are, you know, slowly empowering your children to take on more agency in their, in their time at home and in decisions at home, really put words to what feelings they're going to encounter are so that we can coach what self-regulation actually looks like and sounds like and feels like. Well, Trevor, this has been a great conversation with you. We really appreciate your time. You know, as Jamie said, I think at the beginning, re your passion, like it just comes through so well through this podcast. Uh, so thanks for uh, joining us. But I'm just wondering, you know, if there's uh, a way that our listeners could contact you or reach out to you to see any of the work that you've done, like what would be the best way for them to do that or where should they go? Yeah. Thank you, Carol. I appreciate the kind words. And, and for listeners, you can find me, uh, my website is, is really robust. There are a lot of offerings, there resources, uh, podcast webinars, and that's trevormckenzie.com. McKenzie is M-A-C, trevormckenzie.com. And then I'm, I'm really active on social media. My two online spaces that I nurture uh, are, are Twitter. I'm really active on Twitter uh, and you can find me at Trev underscore McKenzie. And then I'm on Instagram at TNT McKenzie. And, and I, I reference both of those spaces because 
again, you know, I'm really trying to connect the dots for teachers and parents around the world. And, and if you're on those social media spaces, you're going to see that conversation and you're going to be able to participate in that conversation and learn from these other spaces that I'm visiting around the world. So find me there, my website and, and Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for that, Carol. I appreciate you uh, asking me to reference those, those spaces for listeners. And Trevor, we will certainly put those links on our website to once again, make it easier for our listening audience to access you. And in closing, you were a fantastic guest. Uh, love your passion and really greatly appreciate and respect your vast insights and inquiries. So Trevor, thanks again. Thank you so much both for having me. I, I greatly appreciate it. Look forward to hearing the episode live and, and connecting in the future. Thank you. And if our listeners have any questions for us, they can always email us at brickerbybricker at gmail.com or contact us through our website at brickerbybricker.com. And we really encourage our listeners to share our podcast with other families they think might be interested. And a reminder to follow us on Voice Ed Radio or any of the other platforms such as iHeartRadio, iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcast. And we look forward to connecting with you next time on Bricker by Bricker.